season Mm -hmm. and this is the first ever official episode of the randonista podcast i can't believe this day is finally here and i have an amazing episode for you uh we have a great cast of guests today including my in-depth interview slash conversation with vivian ortiz the boston bike mayor and i could literally talk to vivian forever especially about bikes Um, So we did have to eventually cut ourselves off so we wouldn't keep going. Uh, And I also have a quick check-in with Galen Mook, who we'll get to in a second, about what's happening in the bike news. My friend Bridget Copes came for a ride with me throughout Boston. It was her first time getting on a bike in five years. And I had two friends who came and sat down with me to discuss why they're voting Team Woo in the upcoming mayoral election. So for this first segment, we're going to do bike news. My co-host today is Galen Mook. Galen is not only was kind of my first entry into the Boston bike community, but also the inspiration for this podcast when I started co-hosting on his show, Bike Talk, hopefully coming back to uh, 88.1 MIT radio station soon. And uh, I wanted to, you know, Spend more time talking about bikes, so I started this podcast. Galen is the current executive director of Mass Bike, and today, my co-host for this first segment. So, Galen, how's it going? Yay! Thanks for having me. So good to be here. So good to see you launching your podcast. And um, yeah, we talked about this a lot. Yeah, we we missed you on Bike Talk, um, but for years we were you know priming the pump just to get mm-hmm. you ready to spread your wings and pump your tires and. Pop it into the hardest gear, and I don't even know what other bike metaphor. Oh, um, so many bike metaphors. Yeah, just just ring that bell. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks for having me on for your first episode. I feel so honored to be here. Yeah, so let's dive right in. What stories, news, what's going on in the world of biking that you want folks to check out? Oh, gosh. Well, there's so much from the local to the state to the federal stuff. Um, I, there's there's like I mean to be honest it really is just look out your window there's something happening that you probably want to be paying attention to wherever you are it is like moving there's a lot of action so you mentioned a little bit about uh, the mayoral race for the city of Boston and um, there's also a mayoral race in the city of Somerville mm-hmm. and in the city of Everett as well as the city of Northampton the city of Holyoke there's something like 17% of mayors are up for re-election around the Commonwealth. And that's really exciting because most bike infrastructure, most bike policies, most bike stuff actually happens literally from like the mayor's desk. Um, mm-hmm. If you're a mayoral city um, or the town manager's desk, if you're from a town in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, there's a couple of, of key races that we're paying attention to. And I think we can we can highlight, and I know you're going to talk about the mayoral race a little bit later in this episode, but we can highlight a little bit of what's going on in the city of Boston with some contentious possible spots where there may or may not be 
permanent or less than permanent bike infrastructure that's going down. Oh, tell me more. Well, mainly there's Cummins Highway, which is down mm-hmm. in Mattapan. And this has like been a big deal because there was a fatal crash there a little more than a year ago. Um, our good friend, Vivian Ortiz, the bike mayor, um, so anointed, uh, is from the neighborhood, is a huge advocate in the Mattapan community. And Mattapan, as a neighborhood, does not have a lot of safe cycling on its roadways. And there's a beautiful pathway that the state finished a couple of years ago, but there's no real good way to get to the pathway. So Vivian and a few of her cohorts have been fighting for, honestly, years and years and years to get something down in Mattapan. And I'll, I'll just throw it out there. Mattapan is historically a black community, a a lower income community, which in our segregated, you know, lack of a better word, racist uh, systemic view of transportation network means that they don't get a lot of services, including safe places to ride their bike on the streets. So about a year ago, the city of Boston implemented a temporary, what they're calling a protected bike lane cycle track. when they put out some like, water-filled barriers, and they took away a lane of moving traffic and made it a lane for people, widened the sidewalk a little bit, moved the parking out, and made a safe, physically protected bike lane for a huge chunk of the neighborhood of Mattapan, and it was a great success. Vivian went out there to canvas to talk to people about it, teach people what it was, because of course the city didn't do much outreach, and they put it down, and there was some backlash. And now, fast forward to about a year and a half into this program, Seeing the success of what happened on Cummins Highway in Mattapan, the city says, oh, you know what? We would love to make this permanent in the spring, which means now in October, we're going to remove the temporary barricades, put it back to the way it was with full lanes of car traffic, take away the bike infrastructure and make you wait a good five or six months until that safe biking infrastructure comes back again. And that was just like a gut punch, a huge blow for all the advocates that have been pushing so hard down there to at least get something going. So, you know, what we're doing down there in the bike news is we're spreading the word. And there's been a huge, I guess, conversation around who these bike lanes are for. And these bike lanes are for the neighborhood, are for the community. So one of the big things we're pushing here in um, the city of Boston is can the mayor step up? Can the mayor and their team step up and say, you know what? This has been good. We're going to keep this rolling up until it can be made permanent. And we're not going to reverse course. So keep an eye on Cummins Highway. The conversation isn't closed, but it's it's looking to be like it's it's going to be a hard fought one. Now, we might come back in the spring and say protected bike lanes that are made with permanent curbs. Fantastic. Great. But until then, we are we're wary. We're very wary mm-hmm. that this neighborhood that's already is underserved in so many of the city services. It's just going to have another uh, example of just getting the rug pulled out from under them. And then the city just, you know, doesn't pull their weight. Yeah. Uh, Vivian and I, uh, I don't think we talked about it on air, but we definitely talked about it off air, how disappointed she was mm-hmm. about the fact that that project is I mean, kind of falling apart at the moment, but hopefully not forever. But we'll see. And so this another is example prime biking right now with the <laughs> leaves and the foliage. And it's been so nice this season. And, uh, and people need to get to the park. And this would yes. have been a direct way from the neighborhood to get directly to the Neponset Park. So that's one. Another one that's going on right now in the city of Boston is the Mass Ave, Mass Avenue South 
um, which is a huge campaign of the Boston Cyclists Union, which is also one of our compatriot organizations in the city. They're working on continuing the protected bike lanes that basically go through, again, the whiter and richer neighborhoods from Cambridge, from the river, um, all the way up until you get to what is called Mass and Cass, which... For those in the city of Boston know, it's actually one of the hardest hit neighborhoods because it's basically where, um, you know, people with addiction troubles live on the street and are kind of bottlenecked. Um, And the bike infrastructure gets up to there about a block away from there and then peters out into nothing. Then as the road of Massachusetts Avenue gets out into the neighborhoods, again, the black and brown neighborhoods, there is no safe biking. So there's a big campaign now to extend Massachusetts Avenue's bike infrastructure through the neighborhoods that arguably need it the most because these are the people who do not have resources to find other means of transportation um, and need to get out of that neighborhood, frankly. So... That's that's another one to keep an eye on. Um, there's a few more in the city, but those are the two big ones that I want to touch on, at least infrastructure-wise, where the mayoral race actually can put some pressure and maybe elevate some of those conversations to make them happen. And that's that's kind of the local stuff. Um, and I can talk a little bit about some of that state stuff we're working on, if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to hear about e-bikes, Ooh, actually. I was just about to get to it. So mm-hmm. um, one of the big things Mass Bike does, of course, we're statewide with the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, is we focus a lot on our legislation, which means that we help write laws and find sponsors and advocate for safe, sensible bike laws to go out. So we had a couple of, of hearings in uh, state house committees, um, two of them over the past two weeks. We have a set of laws that we're trying to get. Well, they're bills now. Hopefully they turn into laws. Um, One of them, and this isn't e-bikes. I'll get to that in a second. This one would actually be about road safety. So this bill, it's called an act to reduce traffic fatalities. It would implement a uh, three-foot passing law. So anybody who's a motorist passing a, what are called a vulnerable road user. So not just somebody riding a bike, but somebody who's walking or in a wheelchair or, heck, a state trooper riding tickets um, on, on a highway or a construction worker. They're all vulnerable out there. And I, I just to inter- interject for one moment, yeah. when I talk about this, especially on Nextdoor, I don't know why I respond, but I try. I try oh. to bring in facts, at least. And I do. I always try to say it's not just bikes. This stuff is not just for bikers. It's for everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about bike infrastructure, and especially laws like this, it slows down traffic. And we know that people are speeding, especially in the COVID era. We know that speeding is the highest risk of severity in crashes. And if we can cut down people's speed, we will literally save lives. And again, not just bicyclists, but everybody. The drivers yeah. themselves the, will survive. The driving fatalities uh, in 2020 were up even though driving on a whole was down. Mm-hmm. And tickets were down and speeding was up. So it's mm-hmm. it's a big, big problem. So enact use traffic fatalities. It's kind of a collective bill. We call it an omnibus bill. And one of the things, one of the provisions is to make three foot the minimum for passing at 30 miles an hour, or if a driver is going 40 miles an hour, that turns to four feet or 50 miles an hour, it goes five feet. And this is a statewide change. And this is important because you're like, oh, who's going 50 miles an hour? If you're in central mass on some of those roads and they might have wide shoulders and you no sidewalks, you're riding on the roads, um, cars are traveling and drivers are traveling at 50 plus miles an hour. They need to give at least five feet in order to be complying with this potential law. And yeah, that's I've, huge. I've been on roads like that. And yeah, the wide shoulder helps, but it it's still kind of scary if someone's you know close to the line. Mm-hmm. And this would be a big change because we can message it through the RMV, through the driving schools, through um, billboards, through the flashing light campaigns of saying, hey, 
give the proper space. And right now the law says, quote, safe passing distance, but there's no definition of what safe means or safe for whom. Mm -hmm. Um, And for all of you who've been buzzed out there by a, a driver, like, my gosh, like your life is basically in their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would at least help codify the way that we could educate. And then, you know, in the case of a crash, we can actually help with the enforcement. But again, this is to prevent crashes from happening. Um, another part of this bill, which is also worth noting, is a truck side guard mandate. So any truck that is over a certain weight that is leased by the Commonwealth has to have a side guard on it, which basically is a little barrier between the front and rear wheels. So if a person um, who's on a bike or on foot or vulnerable road user is struck by a truck, a driver turning right generally is what happens, um, as opposed to getting rolled over with the rear wheels or getting sucked under the truck. Didn't didn't we have something like that? Was that just in Boston that they did it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. The cities of Boston, Somerville, and Cambridge Mm -hmm. have all done this as a municipal ordinance. Uh, Okay. So this would be for statewide. Yep. Yep. And we would be the first state in the whole country. To actually mandate it. That's awful, um, but exciting. Awful. Well, <laughs> it's it's throughout Canada. Yeah. So, and it's much in place in Europe and actually Washington, D.C. as well. So mm-hmm. not a state, but, you know, a jurisdiction that's... I mean, it should be a state, but that's another and discussion. And the whole, whole of the podcast. <laughs> um, so that's an act to traffic fatalities. And then there's a couple more parts to that bill, which would standardize crash reporting. So advocates mm-hmm. like myself could get a standardized data. Um, and that's basically our traffic safety one. And that's the... That's the big one that we're chasing down, which would help designate vulnerable road users so we have better protections out there on the roads. Is there anything that the people listening can do to support that? Oh, yes. If you live in Massachusetts, contact your state rep and your state senator. You can go to Find My Legislature. Just Google that. Um, give them a call. Just give their offices a call. If you don't know your state rep, they they live in your neighborhood. They're like people. Um, <laughs> they're not this like, you know, wizard they're, behind the curtain. They're not you know the the uh, national senators or anything like that no. they're, they're 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 neighborhood folks they're neighborhood folks and they're constituents your constituent and they are they're they're staffed by constituents like they live and breathe your streets um they want to hear from you so you can also go to massbike.org slash legislation or check out the massbike.org website and we have a bunch of blogs on this too so you can like check down a little bit more information to you know if you want to do some research but you know, the be all end all is get to know your state reps and your mm-hmm. state senators and just honestly, just let them know you're concerned um, because this will come before their desk and then they'll think of you. They'll think of that conversation that you had or that phone call that you had um, or that email that you sent and say, hey, this this matters to people. And that's important because there's something like 4,500 bills filed every year. Um, Dang. And we're trying to get these, this one, this, and then the e-bikes one I'll talk about in a second. We're trying to get these two bills like front and center Yeah. Um, up against 4,500. So, but these are so important because honestly, like no joke, Laura, this, this will save lives. Yeah. Yes, it will. (laughs) Um, And so the other bill we're working on is an electric bicycle definition bill, which Mm -hmm. is like super esoteric and super in the weeds. But the the skinny is um, Massachusetts does not define electric assist bicycles. We define mopeds. We define bicycle but we don't have a definition of an e-bike. And right now our motorized bicycle definition talks about the cubic centimeters of an engine, and that's mm-hmm. gas. The cc's. The cc's for all you moped riders out there. It's gotta be under 50 cc's. Um, and it maxes out at 35 miles an hour and you have to have a license and have to have a helmet. And you're like, obviously this is not made for bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, but for anybody who's ridden like a modern e-bike, that's 
you know, legally sold in this country, they're bicycles. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're trying to do is carve out a definition of e-bikes in state law so that we can actually regulate them. Because right now there's no way to d differentiate where it says no motorized vehicle on the bike path. Obviously that's not made for e-bikes. Um, it's made for mopeds and cars and, and all of that prohibitions. So we're trying to make it so that um, e-bikes are not considered to be motorized vehicles. They would be considered to be more along the lines of bicycles. So wherever bicycles are allowed, e-bikes would be allowed. But then you'd also have the um, classification of e-bike that could be regulated. So if a jurisdiction like a municipality, city and a town, um, a pathway from the Department of Conservation and Recreation, or you know a private trust has a pathway, they could say, you know, this e-bike allowed or e-bike speeds are specific speeds be set for regulations. But right now you can't do that because there's actually not, not a clear definition of what an e-bike is. So we're trying to make that um, front and center. It should be an easy fix. We are literally one of four states in the whole country that haven't figured this out yet. Um, it's like us and Alabama and Rhode Island and Alaska, I think, were the only states okay. yeah, who like don't have a difference between mopeds and e-bikes. Um, Not great company. Yeah, I know. I know. Like Rhode Island, we can do better. Um, <laughs> I know for all you you know, ocean staters out there, whatever. Um, I love you, but mm. yeah, your, your state legislatures. You? <laughs> yeah. Keep it up PBJ. Um, so e-bikes, we all know they're huge if for anybody who's ridden recently and are like works in a bike shop or like has a grandma who's getting back on a bike, like e-bikes are the thing. I, so I was, uh, teaching bike safety lectures in Wellesley the last As you do. week and one of the things that, you know, we try to bring up when we talk about types of bikes is e-bikes. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that the kids either didn't think of it or if you did bring it up, they might think, oh, well, isn't that cheating that you're getting assistance? These are fourth graders. They, first of all, brought up e-bikes. And then I said, well, are e-bikes cheating? And they all shook their head. No, I was so <laughs> impressed. They really got it. They were like, my mom needed to commute further. My grandmother has a bad knee my you know someone i know just got out of surgery whatever it is like the, it's becoming more normal mm -hmm. it is and um sales too nationwide we're in a bike boom now because of covid that's a whole story be, be good to tell but um e-bikes i should say bike sales are up i should say about 70 or so percent year over year from 2020 to 2019 e-bike sales are up 240 percent whoa yeah um, from nationwide standards. So these are hot. Um, <laughs> and they're hot because the technology is getting way, way better. Um, it's their price points are coming down. They're being, you know, they're being utilized for a lot of different types of, of purposes. It used to be, you would only see one, um, for somebody, like you say, like who really needed because of a mobility problem or, mm. um, had a giant cargo bike to carry through. But now you're seeing, all sorts of people, all sorts of demographics just picking up on e-bikes because they would never ride that far. They'd never ride up that hill or they'd never ride to work, um, get sweaty, et cetera. And e-bikes is uh, the tool, the barrier breaker. And one of the things that this bill would help by defining e-bikes, we'd be able to get e-bikes into the bike sharing system, um, which currently is a gray area. And they do it in the Connecticut River Valley with Valley Bike, but we don't have it in the Boston area with Blue Bikes because the municipalities that operate with blue bikes 
that we have 11 cities and towns that are in the blue bike system. I think maybe 14 at this point now. They all have to agree on what e-bikes are. Um, and that's the the asinine part of it. And like, if we have this state law, then we're all talking the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it would it would make possible adding an electric bicycle fleet. And for anybody who's ridden in New York with the bike share there, um, or DC or Chicago or any other sizable cities like Boston, um, e-bikes are already in those fleets. They get used about two thirds the time, and only mm-hmm. one third the time is the analog bikes or the standard bikes. So we would assume that we would get uptick in in, uh, bike share ridership. Um, People would be able to ride farther. So say if you live farther away from the job center, um, Mm -hmm. which is an equity conversation because you can't live close to downtown because you get priced out. Well, you might be able to live farther away, but still bike in with the bike share only if it was an electric assist bicycle. So there's a lot to figure out in terms of how to regulate speed and where they are and stuff. But the very first thing we need to do in this state is just darn it. Let's just define what these things are. So that's a big bill that we're pushing at MassBike. Um, and you can check out our stuff. Again, massbike.org slash ebikes is another page where you can go check stuff out. Nice. So that's that's some of the happenings. Wow. There's a lot happening right now. Definitely uh, lots to check out. Um, always make sure you're you're visiting those Mass Bikes, those Facebook groups that talk about it a lot to stay mm-hmm. involved. Uh, to round out our, our news hour, <laughs> news hour to round out our we could our, take an hour on we this could if you take want. an yeah, hour but on this. I, that's the problem i feel yeah um our news segment here uh i am gonna get to a couple of events to round it out but i want to just highlight a lesser heard story that's near and dear to my heart hmm. um i was looking around on the interwebs earlier today and i, I found this research study on bicycling.com that says black currents may benefit exercise recovery, according to new research. And the reason that I bring this up is because if any of you have ever been to France or Montreal, uh, there is a drink called a Kier or a Kier Royale, which is white wine and black currant or cassis, as mm. it is called. Cassis, yes. Which is one of my favorite drinks. So I was just really excited to find out that there's new research that black currants or cassis could help with my recovery. Now, here they're they're really talking about like essence of cassis, not liquor and cassis but i'm still gonna have to keep testing this i'll go do a zwift ride later and then drink a cure and i think that will really help my recovery i like this will you report back and let us know if it's uh if it's doing its magic yeah i can i can definitely keep the folks informed on how that works uh do they they say why what is it about the about the black current that uh yeah so uh in all seriousness for a moment uh this new small study in the journal of nutrients suggests that wait, wait. journal of nutrients <laughs> the the journal is called nutrients oh, it's a, i i'm getting my news from the wrong sources okay yeah <laughs> please continue uh they suggest uh you may want to consider adding black currant uh which is a shrub grown for its edible berries into your mix and that's your mix of uh you know post-recovery drinks 27 men and women for a double blind randomized study uh who were unaccustomed to strength training took cassis as part of their recovery half the half that took the placebo uh, excuse me half of them took the placebo the other half got a 30 milligram dose of the new zealand black currant extract for 11 days one capsule was taken once a day for seven days leading up to the exercise one was taken before performing bicep curls and then one was taken uh once a day for four days after a workout and they found 
I should have read through this more specifically. They found that the extract group experienced faster recovery of muscle function than the placebo group. So pretty exciting news out there. I like that. I wonder why. Did, what's, what's the next phase of this study, do you think? Uh, and red currants? We're not talking about red currants? Not red. Black. Oh, okay. And it may reduce inflammation and oxidative stress, mm. which is a harmful chemical process in your body. Um, it's associated with athocyanine. That sounds about right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'm going to ditch the chocolate milk and switch over to Cure Royales in the future. Ooh, so. I like that. And uh, this show has been sponsored by... <laughs> Cassis. I mean, that's the hope someday, right? Uh, well, I'll tell you, my post-ride uh, go-to typically is a nice salt margarita. Mm, that's also a good choice. You know, it's got the the hydration. Obviously, you got to rehydrate, mm-hmm. um, but you got to get those electrolytes up, and then you got to replenish the salt. Yeah, and there's no uh, that's very important. No better way than than you know a salted rim, a big old margarita at Lone Star. Oh, so. I miss those. We should get more of those someday. <laughs> All right. Well, I have an important question for you. Uh, what is a ghost-proof bicycle? A ghost-proof bicycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is going to be a spooky one. Uh, ghost the screen, so we can't see it. I can't see the 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 answer. A ghost-proof bike. Um. Oh, it's gotta be you locked. And double chained. I don't know. What's the answer? <laughs> it's one with no spooks in it. Ooh. It's a really bad pun. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> but that leads me into the two events that I want to talk about before mm. we wrap up today, which is this Friday, aka tomorrow, mm. uh, Common Wheels, our organization, is uh, doing a little Halloween ride. It's going to be costumes um, meeting at 6.30 p.m. across from the Trader Joe's in Lower Alston. Uh, I I may hit that one up. Uh, I might have a small bike dog with me, at least for the first part. So mm. if you want to come say hi to Watson and his adorable costume. What's what's Watson going to be? Um, he's going to be a little aviator. And in the backpack <sighs> with the goggles and the hat, he'll look like my little co-pilot. Oh. And then um, on Sunday, on Halloween Day, will be the 21st annual Halloween bike ride, which I am helping lead with Peter Chung. And that one and uh, John McCurdy and John McC- This is John McCurdy's ride. He like started foundational it. 21 years Founded running it. Well, so we had to take a break in 2020. Nobody so. counts 2020. Yeah. So yeah. this is uh, number 21 and that's meeting at 730 p.m. at the Green Street Station in JP. So we hope to see you there. There'll be lots of music. No Watson at that one, but mm. I'll have the music trailer. And that one's Halloween night on Sunday. That one is on Halloween, of course, costumes encouraged, mm-hmm. and we'll be doing a little downtown ride ending uh, at the Herder Park Amphitheater. Oh, for real? Mm-hmm. Lovely. Spooky. 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 <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the election is next Tuesday, November 2nd, as we talked about a lot in this uh, conversation. These elections are important. This, mm-hmm. these are, this one specifically is not senators or reps but your state senators your state reps those are all your down ticket ballots that Mm -hmm. people need to be paying attention to they're they're the the ones ones who make the bike stuff happen exactly Mm -hmm. um and this mayoral election across the area across the state um 
those are all going to be really important to bike infrastructure in the future. So whew, I think we did it. Oof, that was I, a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot happening. And just your first episode, too. And we had to download for the first episode, right? Because uh, now we're caught up. In two weeks, we'll be able to just do that period instead of, you know, the whole time know, There's, there's going to be so much more by then, too. There's going to be too much to talk about in two weeks, I'm sure. Well, congratulations on uh, kicking this off. Thank you. And thank mm. you for being here, Galen. I really appreciate it. Very proud to help. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back in a moment, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. All right. Happy riding. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. One of my ultimate goals of talking about bikes is to get more people riding. So I had been envisioning this next segment for a really long time. It's called Friends on Bikes Eating Dessert. It started as an Instagram hashtag on my page, and now it's a wonderful segment where I get my non-bikey friends to come for a ride with me. Today, we're going to listen to a sit down with my friend Bridget Copes, who put her life in my hands and went on a ride with me to the Bay Village, which is right in the heart of downtown Boston. Don't worry, we found lots of great bike infrastructure, which we'll talk about to get there so that she felt very safe. We'll discuss some fun facts about the area and talk about her experiences. And of course, enjoy a delicious dessert together because, you know, sometimes you got to bribe your friends to get them to come out for bike rides with you, you know? Uh, Please note that this is a field piece. We are actually outside in the Bay Village chatting. So you'll hear some background noise and maybe some Watson barks. Otherwise, it's a really fun conversation. So here we go. I'm going to roll the clip of Bridget and me chatting about our very first ride together for this segment of Friends on Bikes Eating Dessert. Hi, everyone. This is Bridget. Thanks for having me, LJ. This was really fun. (laughs) Um, yeah, this, that was a really lovely first bike ride back after, I think I was trying to think about it, like look at my calendar literally to figure out when was the last time I was on a bike in Boston and I believe it was summer of 2016. That was a long time ago. A long time ago. I've, you know, I think maybe I've been on a blue bike for like a couple of blocks here once since then. And I've ridden bikes at like my parents' house in the burbs, <laughs> but that's it. So that answers pretty much my first question. Um, but I actually want to take a quick step back before we continue talking about biking because I did a little research about the Bay Village, Ooh. and I have some fun facts to share with you. Do you want to share in some fun facts with me today? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> I'm so excited for fun facts. First fun fact: we talked about this as we were walking over. The Bay Village is uh, barely six blocks, and it is the tiniest officially recognized neighborhood of Boston. Whoa. Well, tiny town. Tiny town. town. And it really does feel like its own tiny town. Like, as soon as we walked in, like, off of the street into, like, into the neighborhood, it was like, Yeah, the the street sounds kind of stop, the wind dies down, you feel like you're in a a completely different century, Yeah, which actually takes me to fun fact number two, (gasps) which is that most of the buildings in this neighborhood date back to the 1830s. 1830s. Yeah, which is almost not as old as I thought it would be. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, yeah, thinking about how old Boston is, and, but it's still pretty impressive and that they also just like look like they're 
Like, they just look like probably how they looked at the time. Um, yes, architecturally, uh, you'll notice that these buildings look a lot like the Beacon Hill townhouses. Yeah. Uh, and that's because the people who built these houses were the craftspeople who built the Beacon Hill residences in the time that they were being settled in that area. So it's kind yeah. of funny to think about that this area used to be where, you know, the normal people, the poor people lived, and they made smaller versions of all of these other houses, because now if you go on Zillow, these houses oh are God. each individually worth, a, you know, over a million, if not a couple million. So yeah, it's, it's just really interesting to think about it from that perspective. They even Oof. have their own neighborhood association called the Bay Village Neighborhood Association, or the BVNA, BVN. which is very active, surprise, surprise, <laughs> in controlling <laughs> urban nuisances such as traffic, litter, graffiti, and okay. pet waste. There <laughs> are approved walking areas located in a park that we are not in right now with Watson. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they are also so, known for organizing spring and fall cleanup days, a book club, and an annual neighborhood block party, which I just thought was really fun that they're all kind of very active. If you live yeah. in a community like this, you want to you wanna enjoy living there. You yeah. Know? Oh, that sounds very lovely. I want to know what their book club reads. <laughs> right. We should look that up afterwards. We should. I wonder if we could infiltrate and just, like, enjoy their book club. I've never, I've never been invited to a book club. <laughs> Oh, I, I could invite you to, to I'm in a book club that I never read the book for and I get made fun of every month because I just like going and having a fancy dinner once a month. It's I a real problem. That. That's like, <laughs> but there has to be, okay, as someone who's never been a part of a book club, despite being 34 and having wanted to be a part of a book club, <laughs> like I just, but never making one myself. Um, mm -hmm. my I'm never, I would never ever make one myself. No, that continue. seems like a lot of work. Uh, I feel like the impression that I get as an outside observer of book clubs is that there always has to be at least one person who does not read the books. Like, that is an important role, and someone needs to fill it. Oh, thank you so much. I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> and then if there's someone else in the book club who has, like, a really stressful month, and they are they just can't do it that month, mm -hmm. they, instead of, like, feeling like, oh, no, I'm going to be, like, an outcast if I show up, they're going to be like... LJ doesn't read the books, and she's still a really positive contributing member to this book club, so it's okay to every once in a while attend without having read the book, because she does it, and so I can do it. And so, like, really, you're saving a lot of people's stress. <laughs> wow. That is the best version of that I've ever heard. Also, yes, you are correct. I am delightful company. <laughs> And so I can totally see how I'd brighten everybody's yeah. month. Yeah. Um, what I love about this whole discussion, by the way, is that it is, again, the perfect segue to the next... Yes. And final fun fact that I have for us today. You're nailing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. Uh, the American writer Edgar Allan Poe was born right at the edge of the Bay Village. <gasps> and the house he was born on, which is uh, 62 Carver Street, no longer exists. Oh. But that is why Charles Street South, which we biked on that nice counterflow lane on, mm -hmm. has that monument. In 2014, a permanent memorial bronze sculpture by Stephanie Rocknack was installed at Edgar Allan Poe Square. And Poe returning to Boston. It's a the statue is Poe returning to Boston and depicts a life-size Poe striding against the wind, accompanied by a flying raven, and his suitcase lid has fallen open, leaving a paper trail, which is uh, showing the literary works embedded in the sidewalk behind him. Huh. Poe was 
No, he only lived here for a short amount of time before they moved away. So being able to claim him as his birth is kind of a lot. But <laughs> he also had a lot of disdain for some local Boston writers. And so Ooh. it's just really funny that we've now taken him back and reclaimed him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I had no idea. I associate him so strongly with, like, Baltimore. Yeah. Not... Not Boston. Yeah, but I had no idea. Even though I've seen, I've gone, I've seen that statue up close before, but I, I had no idea. I didn't know it was Poe. I didn't know it was Poe. I always assumed it was some other writer. Yeah. So now we've gotten our fun facts out. We know a little bit more about this location we've gotten to. I want to talk about how we got here. So we talked already about your background in biking, um, and whether or not you've ridden in the city recently. Uh, but I want to know, how did it feel? It felt really good. It was kind of, um, there were a few things that surprised me. Um, so I, I stopped biking in large part because of having some very scary moments um, and not feeling, the cities where I rode for. Which cities were those, by the way? So I, at D.C. and St. Louis. Um, started riding in D.C. in college. Um, and then for a couple of years after college and then in St. Louis, I lived there for two years and pretty much almost exclusively biked most places. Um, the, the bike infrastructure in DC, well, it, it's not even the bike infrastructure as much as just like the way the city is laid out is friendlier. It's easier to have good, um, pedestrian and bike infrastructure, even though I know they have a lot of work to do, um, Boston for me, which I just had more times when I felt like things were out of my control. Mm-hmm. So I was honestly expecting to be more nervous getting back on the getting back on a bike just because of having a couple of experiences that like were scary enough that I was like, I don't think I should do this anymore. Um, but I really, and partly it's because you planned a very safe route. Um, but I still thought that maybe I'd have that like, oh right, this. <gasps> This used to be, this was nerve wracking the last time I did it, but it actually just felt really nice. (laughs) Like it felt very freeing. I felt like that sort of surge again of endorphins of like the wind in my face and feeling really like free. Um, So it felt, that felt really good and was a nice surprise that I wasn't, that it's like the nerves just kind of like melted away immediately. Um, Yeah. So that, that was I was pleasantly surprised by that. Um, I'm sure, like, if I were surrounded by more cars or something, I would probably be a little bit more hesitant still until I've done it more again. Um, Because also, like, my reflexes aren't quite the same. My, like, awareness. You know, it's like when you're biking all the time, you develop a sort of awareness of the road and of everything around you. And that's something that, like, I know. Knowing that that car drifting to the right without a blinker might be about to turn in front of me. Exactly. And it's like, those are things that you just develop. Like, when you're first getting on a bike, it's more of like, okay, like, it's harder to have awareness of all of those things and to just, like, be, pick up the little signs of things that that you need to be on alert for. Um, But it's so nice having, like, just riding along the Charles and being like, oh, like, I need to be aware of pedestrians and, like, (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it felt, it felt good. And it also felt like endurance wise harder than I remembered because I have not been biking regularly. To be fair, (laughs) you've been riding on a blue bike, which does not have a great gear ratio. And so when you have to pedal a lot more, it's going to tire you out more than it needs to. But 
my follow-up question to hearing all of that is, as you see more and more of this infrastructure develop, would you see yourself biking more in Boston? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I hope so. I feel like every year I have like a moment where I'm like, maybe this is the, maybe this is the time I'm going to like, and I've had the same, my, the reason, part of the reason I was on a blue bike is because I've had the same bike since I was 12. I love my bike. I kept very good care of it for a long time. Um, now I need to get a new bike. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) It would cost more probably to get it like cleaned up, cleaned up at this point. Um, and so I think about it, like maybe I should make the investment. Um, and then I, I just like, haven't really made that happen. But I think like, as I see more and more of the infrastructure, and there's, like, more and more being able to, like, I think what will help me is being able to, like, go on rides with friends like you who are already really comfortable, but then also, like, being able to get to place to place on a route like we did today where I'm like, oh, I know that I can really safely get from point A to point B. I think that'll be really helpful, whereas, like, it used to be feel more like, well, there's always going to be a stretch. I'm trying to think of a stretch. There's one tiny section where we weren't in a protected lane. And that was yeah. when we were cutting over to the Charles River. Yeah, and um, even that felt like we took the, like, most comfortable route for that. I felt, yeah. Like, I felt totally fine. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about it because uh, some places will have all that infrastructure and some won't. Um, but they've managed to pretty much create a network for the most part from where I live to here downtown we went four and a half miles today uh, that was pretty much off street or at least protected lane and the more we add those the more we'll get people on riding the hardest part is those connections because uh, yeah. there have there are times uh, and we almost had to ride one of them today until I remembered that there was a counterflow lane that we saw which would have put us a little bit more on a heavy street so I was glad we avoided that. But yeah. uh, that's really nice to hear. That's So that's my dream, of course, obviously, <laughs> is to get more people riding bikes. You know, you can't ride them in every occasion. I get it. But the more infrastructure we have for the most vulnerable on our roads, the more we can do that. Because I am a freak of nature who is not really bothered and <laughs> is completely fine taking the lane and, and telling cars, yes, I'm here and I'm mm-hmm. going to be taking this space, but that's a really hard skill to teach someone. It is. And like, I do not, I used to have that. Like I used to feel very comfortable with that. To the point where sometimes I had to kind of check myself and be like, you need like not to be so comfortable. <laughs> yeah. But that was like after a couple of years yeah. of like having to ride that way, I guess. Um, and having to be like the way for me to be safe is to take the lane and, and, and then it's just like the, the comfort just kind of develops and that would take me a long time and also riding. It's like, that's something that I think for me would be like, I need to be riding every day mm-hmm. for that to come back kind of quickly. So like, and I don't really necessarily need that for myself. Like, I think it's for me, it would be great to just be like, Oh, on the weekends I'm going to like, I don't necessarily, I mostly, I don't have a car. I mostly take public transit, which is, which is great. So I don't necessarily feel like, um, I need to like replace all of that with biking, but like on the weekends at the very least, when I have a little more time, it would be nice to like, be like, Oh, I can, I feel comfortable again, just jumping on my bike and knowing that I can like go ride in the Charles or, you know, around wherever. Um, and I'll be in bike lanes and it's, it's great. 
Um, like there can be like that great middle zone, I think for people. Yeah. So, uh, my next question for you is, do you think you'll start riding more now that you kind of see the infrastructure? Keep in mind, I'm always a resource if you're looking for (laughs) someone who rides around a lot. And so to your point, I know the city and Cambridge and Somerville pretty well because I ride around in them a lot. So I'm visually seeing them constantly. Um, but I'm happy to always help with route planning. Do you think you would start taking your bike out more? I think so. Yeah. And I think, I think having the blue bikes available too, I mean, they've been around for a long time, but I think that is also something I'm going to do. I think I'm going to start doing that a little bit more and just like, yeah, I feel this felt really nice. (laughs) So I think I do want to like feel that way again. Woohoo! That's a win. Yay. All Uh, right. I do have one more question for you. Bridget, what is your favorite dessert? My favorite dessert is carrot souffle, Can you which tell I me? was introduced to by you. <laughs> LJ introduced me to carrot souffle, I don't know, four years ago or something? Yeah. Something like that mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving, and I've been just over the moon for it since. <laughs> so good. So my... A uh, way of getting Bridget out on this ride with me today was not my company, my delightful company, as we've already established earlier. No, no, no. It was bribing her with her absolute favorite dessert that I have sent her the recipe for and she's never made for herself. So I... The secret is spilled. (laughs) I have let everybody know that she could take care of this herself and she doesn't. No. (laughs) But I, I bribed Bridget today with some homemade carrot souffle. So we are going to sign off and we're going to enjoy some delicious dessert. So uh, thanks for riding with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm so ready to demolish this. Yes, let's (laughs) dig in. Thank you again, Bridget, for coming out and riding with me. I had so much fun. You can see more of my adventures with Bridget on the Instagram page. I brought my GoPro with me. So there's great footage of Bridget, myself, and Watson all out biking. Uh, And finally, we're going to get to the meat of the episode. This is my conversation with Vivian Ortiz. Not going to go into all of her accolades here, but she's a pretty important person and a staple in the Boston cycling community. So here is my conversation with Vivian Ortiz. Welcome, everybody. I am in the lobby of the One Federal Building. Uh, We got some cool jams going. You might be able to hear that in the back of our recording today. And I'm sitting down with a wonderful person who has so many titles to her name, and she can make all the faces that she wants at me, but it's true. I'm going to run through those titles and then let her introduce herself. The first is the obvious one, bike advocate. And then we have a league certified or league cycling instructor, that bike lady, Mattapan Viv, which just gives away who this is. Uh, Livable Streets board member? Yes. Still a board member. Bus model. Safe routes to school outreach coordinator. League of American Bicyclists board member. And, of course, the Boston bike mayor. So welcome to the show, Vivian. Thank you. That's really awkward. (laughs) All that other crap, but let's do it. Did Did I miss any? Just gonna keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, Vivian, I wanted to sit down with you today for a couple of reasons. The first obvious one, 
you're just a fun person to talk to. Um, and you were high on my list of interviews that I wanted to make sure that I, I brought into this podcast project that I'm working on. Um, but you also were, you know, elected, voted in, uh, appointed I'll you keep you, shaking I'll, your head tell, you tell me the story about so the bike actually, mayorship so it the first time i actually heard about this bike mayorship um was with my friend courtney who was also a league cycling instructor who lives in brooklyn she's the the brown bike girl that many of us have met she came out to boston a couple of years ago when we did the neighborhood bike forum and she's just all over social media she's amazing so i saw a picture of her on instagram and she had this sash across her chest and I just wrote on there like what is this you just decided this morning to put on this thing I just I just decided for myself and I got a stash people's bike mayor of New York a sash (laughs) and so she said yeah it's a thing and I was like whatever so during the pandemic during the summer she did this really amazing thing she was having this bike bingo thing that she did a couple weeks and it was really really smart because this is what Courtney does full-time and what she did was that she had like this bike trivia thing that she was just inviting friends um, to join her. And it was really great because I got to meet some really interesting people that it all had played a role in her life when it came to biking. So while we were on that, I got to meet Patty Baker, who was in Atlanta, amazing, amazing person. And then so after Courtney was became the, the people's bike mayor of New York City, then Patty became the people's bike mayor of Metro Atlanta. And so I was like, wow. So then what happened was Becca and Galen called me one day. I don't think Stacy. Can you just fill everybody in on who those people are? Who is the executive director of Mass Bike and just amazing all of this other stuff that he does. And then Becca Wilson is the executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. So the two of them called me and said that Stacy Thompson, who was the executive director of Livable Streets, the the three of them had decided that I should like be the, the people's bike mayor of Boston. And I was like, I have way too much stuff going on. There's no way because I'd already learned from... We, we just heard that whole list. She's got a lot in her life. Well, but I mean, it was like, I already knew that Courtney and Patty, this is what they were doing full time. So I was like, I can't do more stuff. This is just like, I can't. And I, you know, I have this full time job and I say yes to too many things. So they were like, no, 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 no. We're going to make sure that, you know, you're just going to keep doing what you're doing. And so basically the, the, it's... I'm going to get this wrong. It's You would pronounce it bikes, mm-hmm. B-Y-C-S, which is an international organization that's based in Amsterdam that I don't know exactly when was the first time that they had a bike mayor, but it's people that either nominate themselves or are encouraged to put in for this. I see it as like an ambassadorship of people biking. But what's really, really cool is that it's not a popular thing in the United States. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't get to that level, but it's not something that's based in the United States. Yes, it's based in Amsterdam, and they do have a good number of mayors in Europe, but the number of mayors that they have in other parts of the world is what makes this really cool. So That is really cool. I, I glanced at their website today. Do you know how many mayors there are in the U.S. at I'm this the point? sixth one. You're the sixth one? There are only six of us. What are the others? Do you know the, the other, other cities? The other six are all women. Well, the other five are all women. Good. Keen. I remember because I asked him. I said, Keen, New Hampshire? This is the crazy thing. So the <laughs> way they have it listed, and this is where I was being like U.S.-centric, it just says Boston, USA. It says New York, USA. That one can stand alone as well as Boston. But then it said Keen. And I was like, w- I don't know where the hell Keen is. How awful. It's in New England. So is that a Vermont? Is that Maine? 
And then no and no. I asked them, I said, I think that for the United States, you probably should add the name of the state. And then they were like, well, we'd have to do that for all of the other places around the world. Right? Um, and I was like, okay. So it's an interesting thing if people look on there and they're wondering what is Kane. I was one of those people and I live in this country. But um, lots and lots of mayors in Central America, lots and lots of women. And India has its own division because of the fact that they have so many. So um, it's really, really cool to be in a space, not physically yet, but like tomorrow we have a call for all of the female or women or folks that identify as women from around the bicycle um, network, the bike mayor network. We had one not too long ago, which was just all of the bike mayors all over the world. They have bike mayor calls for the ones in Latin America. It's really, really, really cool and interesting. And, and the fact that we all are battling the same stuff regardless of where you're at. I didn't realize that they have these major, major conferences in other parts of the world because of the fact that we're only thinking of what is happening in this country, right? So, like a national bike summit type of thing? International. But international? Oh, that's so cool. I'm so looking forward to the one. I think, I don't know what it's called and I should know because it was the first time I heard about it. It just happened recently and next year it's going to be someplace in Colombia and I am really, really looking forward to it to physically being down there. So anyway, that's just, it's just opened up this whole other world. And when we're on these calls, the interesting thing is, which is something that we lack desperately in this country, most everybody that's on these calls speaks English. Huh. It's really, really interesting. But anyway, that's what the whole thing is. So what happened was I was, it was announced last year at the um, Boston Cyclist Union friend raiser that had to happen virtually and then it was like I didn't have my crap together we hadn't done it all we kind of were doing it backwards so we had to like backtrack and I had to get letters from people so I was you know I, I got letters from I got letters from my congresswoman Ayanna Presley I got some from my city councilor Andre Campbell and then just other folks just saying you know we think this is a good thing and so I don't remember officially when it was that it was like all right we, we've checked you off and the thing is they're not the ones that make the decision but they want to vet the person um, and basically, they, they don't want me, just some random person nominating themselves. And basically, they don't want another white man that's always in a kit. Yes. That's the other thing. It's like they told me if we get that, we're going to say we don't think so. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why we only have women in the United States, or maybe it's because women are the ones that are self nominating themselves, or other people are saying you're the one that's doing the work, and that's why. So it's interesting because I see what Courtney is doing, I see what Patty is doing, and they're hardcore advocates and it's a very fine line that I have to watch myself in because of the job that I have um, I have to be very careful when it comes to the advocacy thing um, because I'm funded by the federal government and so I have to be really careful so it's a little difficult um, but I just keep the way I see it is I want to be able to promote the wonderfulness the joy that people can find in biking and that's kind of the way I'm taking it um, I still, you know, I'm part of groups where we are advocating for better um, solutions to walking and biking throughout the city, throughout the state, throughout the country, but I I'm not comfortable doing it, like, in a public setting hmm. as of yet. I'm not going to be behind some podium one day doing something like that. I find that a fascinating thing for you to say, because everybody knows who you are in the Boston cycling community. <laughs> no, no, and I'm not, I'm not... I know, I know what you mean. But I'm not, I'm, and it's just not my personality mm -hmm. to be like, ding, 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 
Yeah. Here I am. Look at me right now. Yeah. No, no. But the other thing is, and I'm going to just say this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it, and you could do with it whatever. When, when <laughs> Not cutting lights, anything, when Vivian. The lights were coming to Mattapan, right? Oh, mm-hmm. my God. I was so thrilled. It took a very long time for them to come. I knew, I had already understood the process. You can't have blue bikes in Mattapan unless Dorchester has blue bikes, right? Mm-hmm. And so some folks in the community wanted to come to Mattapan and, like, do a standout against our former mayor about whatever it was, you know, having to do with, with bikes. And I said, no, 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 please do not come to my neighborhood and do that because I live there and I really don't want that to be a message that's coming from Mattapan on a day where we should be celebrating the fact that we're getting this. So... You know, that was nice. They did respect that. And there's been other times where it's like, well, we want to go to the bike lanes and Cummins Highway and we want to do it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Our community's not ready for that. That's not. So this is. We're doing things. So we need to just wait a little. So this is people trying to come into the neighborhood and rile things up a little bit. That's and you're just trying to, you know, baby steps. If we want this, we got to. Because it is it's something new. Mm-hmm. It's something that folks are just not familiar with, and we all of a sudden, you know, it's not genuine because it's not people that are in the community that are riding bikes. Mm-hmm. That's going to take us a while to get there. Um, I still think I'm the only person in that <laughs> that rides a bicycle full time. Um, I'm not happy with that, you know. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, which is, uh, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics in Mattapan and the area that you live? Because um, I think a lot of people don't realize how different it is from Boston, you know, the separate neighborhoods, separate cities out there. When I started riding a bicycle and I fell in love with it, was 2015-ish or whatever? Yeah, we'll come back to that story. So we had no, I felt like a queen, right? I was like a diva because if I wanted to leave my house and it required me going like to go to Boston Bike Party, I was afraid. Yeah, I was like, I cannot go out there. So I actually had my dear friend Alex would come to my house and like help and we'd ride together right Mm -hmm. um because we didn't have forget about infrastructure we just did not people were not used to seeing people riding bicycles and i Mm -hmm. understood that they were uncomfortable because they didn't know and i knew that it was going to take a while for us to be able to get any of those changes but things definitely changed when the naponsa river greenway the trail between milton and mattapan opened up because it made for me at least it was like i was much more comfortable i had a safe space to be able to bike in um we is there... still have it. We don't have enough people in my neighborhood, though, that are using that. Space. I was just going to ask, is it a lot of people from Milton coming and riding from on it? the very first weekend, from the very May 19th, 2017, that morning when Lee and I led the ride from... Lee Toma from Lee Milton. Toma. <laughs> I will be name dropping a lot. There are a lot of people that are... There are a lot of people, and I, I do want to get most of them on here yeah, chatting yeah, as well, so. so you should know their names. Okay, so anyway... We had led that morning the the annual bike to work day to City Hall, and it was like, when the hell is this path going to open? And then it turned out later on that afternoon it did, and it was amazing that weekend. All the folks that came out, but they weren't people that looked like me, and they were not people from my neighborhood. and And we'd gotten the word out as best we could, but but people in Milton were just more on top of it or just more involved in the process of it, and that that really hurt. It really hurt, and it still to this day does because it's just like. I mean, this is a trail for anyone's use, but I'm like, damn, it's really in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And what can we do to get more folks um, interested in it? Um, just last night, we were um, in a meeting talking about the redesign of Blue Hill Avenue. And one of the questions that we asked on just some fun polls were, 
how many people have been on the Neponset Greenway. And of the, I don't know, probably 60 people that were in this meeting, I think the, it was 52% of people that had never been on it. Wow. So I, I was, Lee was on that as well, and I, I wanted to chat on, like, we got, we got some work to do. And I'm saying that because I'm part of the Neponset River Greenway Council. Oh, yeah, there's is, another title we missed. I knew there was one in there. This is Lee Toma, Jessica Mink, and, and we're the three people that are, that are the ones that, that pretty much bike full-time. And so it was like we, we need to work a little bit more to get other folks that are not aware of the path to come on that. And one thing I want to mention, it is a path, it is a trail, it is not a bike path. Because as long as we keep referring to it as a bike path, then folks that do not bike think that it's not a space for them, all right? Mm -hmm. So we can just kind of remember that when we've got shared use paths. Paths. Oh, my God, what the hell is that? (laughs) Shared use paths (laughs) that we remember that it's not only for people that are biking because then it's almost saying, oh, you don't belong. That makes perfect sense. Uh, I think shared use is always a good term as well. You know, welcome to all. Sometimes I want to just put up signs that say for everybody. Uh, We'll get there. So actually, you kind of hinted to this and and we'll come back to some of the work that you're doing. But I think you have a very interesting story of how you did get started riding a bike. And I know you've shared it in the past. Gazillions of times. times. But for anyone who hasn't heard it, this can be a short story if you want, but I, I do think it's inspirational. Reader's Digest condensed version. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Military kid. We ha- I remember that my brother and sister and I shared a bike. I think we were living in Wisconsin or something like that. And what happens with military families, every time you move, you can't take everything, so the bike didn't make it. So years, years later, you know, I, uh, El Paso is where my father retired. That's what I consider home. And, you know, when I got a driver's license at 17 years old, that was what I did. It was the most normal thing to do. When I moved to New York City and all of my girlfriends, when we turned 50, my girlfriends in El Paso were doing triathlons. I was like, I don't want to swim and I don't want to run. I just would like to get on a bike. And so one of those girlfriends came to visit. We went to Martha's Vineyard. She convinced me that we should do bikes because with other alternative was like mopeds or something else. I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> and I couldn't, I didn't know how to stop on the trail. Um, and I think it was a little kid that came up from behind me and kind of startled me. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what these things are on the, on the handlebars because I had only ridden a bike that backpedaled. Now I know those are called coaster brakes. But mm-hmm. that, that was all I knew how to do. And so I kind of let myself fall into this guardrail thing. And I was like, this is ridiculously embarrassing. And then he Googled it, found that the, pro- the city of Boston has a program that teaches women how to ride. So it's seven years ago that I went to that program. And I say I learned how to ride there, and it truly was that, because I really learned how to ride a bicycle there, because I learned how to balance, and I learned how to use my gears, and, I knew, and then that's when it was like, oh my God, I want to do this. And soon after that, I, I found the bike community, found out about you know, these bike parties and these group rides, and, and, and at nighttime, um, buddies would come, Alex was that person that would be like, hey, you want to go for a ride? And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know. My fix, and we'd ride at night. He taught me how to ride on Blue Lab because I was terrified to ride on Blue Lab. Didn't know how to ride on a hill, any of that stuff. And then, um, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. And then the following year, um, I was gifted a bike. Vivian Morris from Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition. Her cousin had two bikes in her basement that hadn't been used for a while. So interestingly, Chevelle Olivier, who's now the executive director of Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition, Vivian Morris said, okay, there's two bikes here. Which one do you want? So she took one and I took the other one. And it was a three-speed Huffy. (laughs) 
when I first rode it into a space, somebody, somebody was like, oh, that looks like one of those bikes that like, people in movies ride or whatever. And, and I named her um, Pastora. And the reason was that because my grandmother, who was a medium, meaning spirit, spoke through her, really, really took care of me when I was on that bike because I was really scared. And everywhere I went, I just felt like peaceful because I felt that she was, you know, watching over me. So I can't believe that I did the intermediate ride for Metapan on wheels on that bike. And then folks started talking to me about, you need, you need to get another bike. Is that, bike. is that 30 miles? No. 20 no, miles? It was, it was something like that. Even yeah. 15, I mean, there was this hill in Quincy that I don't even know how the hell I made it up there. I even went to um, Ferris Bikes, and he did something on the, on the I don't know, bike mechanic terminology, but he added like a, a mid-gear or whatever to help me kind of go up hills or whatever. But anyway, that bike is still around. That's my bike, one of the bikes that I plan on using to help folks that are getting on a bike for the first time because it's... It's special, um, and I'm not going to get rid of it, but it's not the most efficient bike to ride mm-hmm. when you're commuting. So. Uh, I kind of want to dig into this a little bit. So something that comes up a lot when I'm talking to people is the fact that you know commuting to a lot of people seems really scary by bike, and you went from zero to 60. Was it was there a transition in there in which you started to ride and then realized that, you know, this bike could really get me a lot of places and I should start riding it more, or were you just all in from the beginning? Oh, hell no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, other, all right. That makes diva, me feel better. <laughs> the other part of the diva, I have to mention this too. So mm-hmm. I... Um, when I first moved to, well, when I left El Paso and came to, I went to New York City for grad school. Why would I have a car, right? So that just didn't make any sense. So I basically learned public transportation in New York City. So it was like, once you've got it from there, then you can do that anywhere. And then um, I moved to Boston in 2009, and folks were like, you're going to have to get a car. It's just not the same here. The subway doesn't run 24 hours. And I was like, just because people are telling me that I need to get a car, I don't think I'm going to because I am the middle child. Right, so I was, and I didn't want to shovel, and I didn't want to pay thirty dollars for parking, and you know, the carbon footprint lessening it was was another reason why I could have brought my car from El Paso, but why would I do? Why would I do that? So, and I'd already gotten used to, after two and a half years, getting around on on public transportation. So I did that for five and a half years. I left Dorchester or Quincy and went all the way to Wellesley Hills, an hour and a half. I got used to it, right? So. Once I left that job and I was actually working in Mattapan, then that's when I, the bike thing started around that same time. But I was really scared to leave my house and just ride to Mattapan Square like a seven-minute bike ride at that point. It's, it's faster now because I have a different bike. But I was just afraid to even do that, right? Mm-hmm. So one morning after, you know, knowing how to get there and, and already learning, you know, how far I needed to stay away from parked cars and all that. I was just like, I, I cannot expect people to come here every day to help me get to my job. So I just went for it. Um, and then really it was just folks inviting me and saying, come on, let's go. And, and it was really kind of learning where to place myself in the street that I got much more comfortable not 100% confident, but I knew what my place was. And I just kind of got this, this is what I want to do, and I'm just going to make it work, right? I didn't have enough time probably to think about it. And then the whole advocacy stuff started, and then I really started realizing, oh, shit, you know, 
this is serious stuff and people get seriously injured in this. Mm-hmm. But I had already picked up that this is what I'm doing. And I mean, I didn't ride long distances. I didn't have to. I was working in Mattapan. It was it was the bike party and the social riding that got me a little bit further out and mm-hmm. then building the stamina. And then I didn't ride year round. And then that's when I discovered 30 Days of Biking. Oh, yes. So I the first year that I tried to do 30 that I did 30 Days of Biking, which was, you know, it, it happens in April. April. 30 was, days in it April. Was, it was cold. And so I remember taking the bike out. It took me longer to take the bike out of the basement than the amount of time that I rode <laughs> because it was cold. And I just went a little bit and came back and then every day. And so that first year was when I just, you know, I my stamina started building and I was like, okay. And so I went right into biking season, what other folks call biking season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just kind of continued. And then the more I rode, the longer distances, the more comfortable I was. And then that, that's just kind of how it went. It wasn't like I decided that this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And that's normally what I recommend to people. Like you don't have to be all in day one, build, do it gradually, maybe commute once a week, whatever the case may be. And then the next thing you know, you're doing what I did, which was bike 24 miles just to go teach for an hour. Um, it was only 12 miles each way. It was fine. But the kids, that's, that was, that was for Wellesley for Vivian. Uh, but the kids, the kids were just so impressed. Oh my goodness. I could never ride that far. So it was kind of fun to be able to engage with them in that way of, yeah, I took my bike out and I can take it to all these places, which is really great. Yeah, it is. It really is. I, I, I was also going to say when I got my first road bike, it was my sister's old bike. So youngest child, I got a hand-me-down. All of a sudden, I was like, uh, I know which ones are the brakes, but I don't know anything else that works. Like, I couldn't figure out how to shift it at first. It was, there's a lot going on, yeah. and all bikes are different. So I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. It's like you get in a different, it's like the first time not owning a car, whenever I do rent, which is very infrequently, it's almost like, wait, what, what am I supposed to do here? Mm-hmm. You know? I was a pet sitter for a very long time. And it was like when I would stay in people's houses, it was like, how the hell do I use the remote control? Yeah. And which drawer is, where are the forks in? You know, those mm-hmm. were like the little simple things that every time that I went to someplace, I'd have to remember, wait, what am I supposed to do here? And that's exactly what it's like when you get on a different bike. But um, similar, but different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you, your brain just takes a little bit of time until you figure out what's going on. So, yeah. Becca had called me because there had been a, a person had been killed on Morton Street um, she'd gotten off the bus and it was at night and folks were wanting the community to talk about this tragedy. And Becca was very honest. She's like, you know, I'm this white person that lives in Somerville and yes, I run an organization in Roxbury, but I don't think I should be the one that's, that's making a comment. And so she asked me and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know on behalf of Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition. Cause at that time, I was overseeing a grant-funded program where we had healthy community champions, and part of what we were working on was promoting active transportation, so getting more folks in Mattapan interested about walking and biking. So she thought, you know, what do you, do you think that MFFC would want to say something about that? I'm like, I, I really don't know. But from out of that came this, let's have a conversation with people in our neighborhoods, and that's when the Boston Neighborhood Bike Forum started, which was pretty organic in the sense that it was... Um, some of the folks that were working on this Boston Public Health Commission administered grant, so 
um, Tamika Francis was the project manager and uh, Mary Bovenzi from the Boston Public Health Commission and then Becca and some other folks that were in the active transportation world. And what happened, which was kind of cool, Angela Johnson came into the picture a little bit later. She represented the organization. It turned out that it was all women that were the ones that were planning this Boston neighborhood bike forum and it became a very social event. We would meet like on a weekly basis, always at Deadly Cafe. And that ride from Mattapan to what we now refer to as Nubian Square was something that I started. That was like my first commute because we would do it on a somewhat regular basis. So somehow I got comfortable biking on Morton Street, um, which interestingly is a state road. So when the when the city when the city lessened the speed limit to 25 miles per hour in Boston, mm-hmm. that being a state road, it doesn't, doesn't qualify count. for that. Oh. So there's a portion on that. There's an actual speed limit sign that says 45 miles per hour, which means that people are going 60. Yeah. So I think the rest of the road is 35 miles per hour, which is also you know a, a bit high. But anyway, that became, I think, my first regular commute because it was like on a weekly basis and I got pretty comfortable and, and the distance was something that I could manage. So I was trying to remember when did that all happen and I think it was through that. And then the other thing that happened that because we, it took such a, it was a couple of months for us to plan. I started having to ride at night because whatever, you know, we were transitioning from fall into winter and it would be 4.30 in the afternoon and it was getting dark. And I remember You mean it was things, dark already. Or, yeah, <laughs> right now it's going to be that way. I can't so, believe it's getting dark already right now. So I was afraid to bike at night because I had already experienced riding a bicycle in rush hour traffic. And that wasn't my favorite. And then I thought, I'm going to need to do this at night. So I learned how to just take my time, find something to do. And we would meet in the bowling building, which is open. We'd meet in Dudley Cafe and sometimes in the bowling building. So I would take out a computer or do something and just kind of let a, a little bit of time pass so all the rage would be over with. And then I could bike comfortably. Or the other thing is I remember when Galen was like, you don't have to be superwoman because I thought I have to bike everywhere. I have to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do. And then it was like, no, you don't. You can put your bike on the bus. So, yeah. you know, early on I was like, I know how to put my bike on the bus and, and started doing that and realizing it's better to be safe than trying mm-hmm. to be heroic. And I would do that every once in a while. And I still do that. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm not feeling it. My gut will tell me, I think they're being a little aggressive. Mm-hmm. I'm just not feeling it. And I'm going to make sure that I get there safely. So um, that's another thing that we need to remember that we don't have to think that we have to be all and you know i'd much rather have people putting their bikes on buses than getting into cars the more people do that as well create those connections use the buses and the racks on the front the more the city is going to put those racks on the buses and have it more readily available and the bus drivers knowing how to use it and everything exactly and i tell folks take your time because the MBTA driver needs to wait for you to be mm-hmm. able to place it on there. I mean, people need to try it because that's always an option. As you know, if it starts raining or if it's ugly or whatever, or you get a flat tire. What? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Take your time. Do not let those bus drivers. And one time, a bus driver actually came out and helped me because it was like stuck or something like mm-hmm. that. People say, "Oh, well, they're not going to help you," or "They're not going to." And I'm like, it all depends on the tone of voice that you have and how mm-hmm. you ask. Like, yeah, if you come in with niceness, you're going to get a much better reaction. That, right? And then um, one of the other things that if, if you met me for the first time, I'm always going to ask you, do you ride a bike? Mm-hmm. I ask everybody, do you ride a bike? 
And the number of people that, that will share, they do, but or they have a bicycle, I should say. And I'm like, so do you ride it? And they're like, no, you think I'm crazy? I'm not going to ride out in the streets. And then having that conversation with them about, you know, there are other spaces that you can kind of try it out, build up the stamina first, and then, you know, you can transition in. And because of the fact that I'm an LCI, I can help you ride <laughs> on the street. So anyway, I'm going off. Uh, no, that's fine. I was going to say the segment just before this uh, was me taking my friend Bridget out for a ride. And she used to bike a lot in other cities. She uh, has a bike here in Boston and she just never rode it because after a while she'd had a few aggressive incidents and she just didn't feel comfortable. And having, you know, I was thinking about this when you were talking about your friends coming and, and bringing you places that that's basically what it was. I was bringing her I also got to show her that there's lots of new infrastructure that you can use. There were a lot of protected lanes that we were going through. So it was really eye-opening for her to be uh, in the middle of all of this, seeing all of the new infrastructure and suddenly feeling like, yeah, I can do this. It doesn't have to be every day, but on a Saturday, I can take my bike out and feel a little more confident about going out and riding. And that that you just talked about doing, I think all of us, need to do that we need mm-hmm. to find a person and i know i've mentioned to this in the past and i've said it to to the advocacy world after being in this pandemic if those folks that rediscovered biking recreationally or whatever it might have been and felt comfortable if they go back to their cars it's our fault because mm-hmm. if you know someone that that you were able to kind of bring out and they got their bike or they decided to buy a bike or they just started using a blue bike and now they're coming back and they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go back to, we should have guided them through that. And, you know, showing somebody how to get to their workplace that, that is in your community is like, that has been one of the most fulfilling things for me. I've done it a couple of times. Um, we've got a community center, um, a BCYF community center in my neighborhood. And the director told me that the, the assistant director said, hey, you know, he started riding a bike. I told him about you. And I was like, what? But he didn't even realize that the Naponset Greenway was right there, which is something that happens. A lot of people don't realize the reason it's called River Street is because there's a river back there. and he works, You can't see it from the yeah. street. Yeah. He, um, he lives in Dorchester, and he was working right here in Mattapan and commented about how getting to work, he was okay, but on the reverse commute, he was just a little uncomfortable. And I said, wait, 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 wait. Come down here, meet me. He was like, I had no idea there was a trail back here. So I guided him one afternoon, and then we came out to Dorchester Ave, and I was talking to him about, you know, move away from the car, talking to him about Doring, and and helped him make it home, you know. And, again, he's not doing this every day, but now he knew that he had that other option. He had invested in a bike. He'd gotten a helmet. He'd done all this stuff. I'm like, we need to help them make sure that this is something Mm -hmm. that they're continuing to do. So. Finding that person, asking them, you just never know. It could be somebody that lives around the corner from you, and they're willing to have that guidance or that help or that that companionship, and then, you know, we got them. (laughs) They're ours. ours, One of us. One of us. So, um, and that sometimes is difficult because... I wanted to mention something about when I also commuting. Before I was working with Safe Routes to School, and I was working with Mass Bike and doing, you know, teaching... um, in schools, it was in Cambridge, and I'm like, oh my god, I have to ride my bicycle from to Cambridge. And in the beginning, <laughs> sometimes I would do it on the bus, um, and then I, I started getting a little more comfortable. And when you were talking about bike lanes and protected bike lanes, 
They're mm-hmm. great, but when you're a newbie, it's intimidating as hell. Really? Because the other folks that are in those spaces, depending on the bike lane, and the mass app bike lane, it's beautiful and great, but it's, you know, a commuter lane. That's true. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've many times wanted to hang things on the, the Southwest Corridor trees that say, like, slow the F down. Yeah. If you need to ride that fast, ride on the street, right? Because there isn't this, this courtesy or empathy mm-hmm amongst ourselves and so some folks people get some folks get intimidated because they've been let's say walking on the southwest corridor and just people will speed by them we don't we don't announce ourselves we don't ring our bells and all of this and so they're like you think i'm gonna ride a bike out of here with these folks and as fast mm-hmm. as they're going so i remember one of those first times being on mass Ave in that bike lane and thinking oh my god this is scary as hell and thinking I had to keep up with folks. And then I was like, no, you just need to kind of... It was more intimidating on the bike lane in Boston than actually being on the bridge crossing over for me. Oh, my street. God. On the Mass Ave Bridge? On the Mass Ave Bridge. Just, Dang. I don't know. Maybe it just felt like there was more space. Mm-hmm. Even though I think the bike lane width-wise are still the same. Yeah. But it just felt not perhaps not as confined. And then there are not parked cars on the bridge. So that probably right. had something to do with it too. But it was just like these speedsters going by that one day I actually, at, on the Southwest quarter, and one of, when we stopped, I just said, you guys need to announce yourself. You need to be nicer to each other. You need to let us know that you're coming because there are people that are here that are walking and, the, and people that are new to biking and you're whizzing by and all that is intimidating. I'm sure they were all like, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. First of all, people in New England don't talk to each other. And <laughs> who are you to be saying this? You know, I felt better for having done it. I don't know. Maybe for the rest of the day, they might have thought maybe about it. A, and maybe, maybe it planted a seed. On their way home, they thought, oh, I wonder if we're going to run into that crazy lady again. Because it's the lecture this morning. But at least at that moment, I, I kind of in my head said they might remember that. It's true, though. There's an extreme lack of courtesy out there that is wild to me um that happens to me a lot like on the charles river and i'll go to glance over my shoulder to make sure someone's not coming up behind me before i pass a runner and go whoa because i don't realize there's a person right next to me sometimes i hear their wheel and i say it anyway just to be like emphasis like you gotta let me know you're there um but i've been legitimately surprised plenty of times and it would, you know, then we don't have to spray paint new bridges saying walk your bike because really it needs to say just be courteous to each other. Exactly. Like go exactly. slow and be courteous. Exactly. It just shouldn't be that hard. It's actually pretty interesting because when I'm doing bike safety education with the kids, I'll ask them, you know, so what happens if you are riding your bicycle on the sidewalk? For those of you that do not know, it's completely legal and acceptable to do that in Boston, not in Cambridge. But in Boston... Well, Cambridge, just not in business districts. In business districts. But in Boston, you can basically ride your bicycle anywhere. anywhere. And so, you know, a a kid will be riding their bicycle on the sidewalk, and I tell them, what happens if you get into a space where there's just a lot of people in front of you and they're walking? What would you do? And all of the answers that they give, well... um, I'd let them go around me, and I'm like, no, 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 no. They're walking in front of you in the same space. You're behind them, and you're going to be going in the same direction. And it takes them a while, and I don't ever think I've actually had a student say to me, I'll get off of my bicycle and I'll walk it. That is just mm-hmm. like, why, that is so foreign. And then, and then, you know, it's like, we need to share the space. Mm-hmm. People that are walking, that is the only space that they have. We can go 
you know, from the street onto the sidewalk. And so when we're on the sidewalk, we really need to be mindful of the folks that are on there and just take a moment and get off your walk and walk, walk it. And then, and when I say it, it's like this light bulb comes on, like <laughs> I never even thought I, I had to ride my bike the entire time. And it was like, no, it's about safety. It's about being courteous. I think that's a good one too of, uh, you see people get agitated sometimes. Again, going back to the, the speedsters, the men in Lycra, um, you know, I mean, there's this... The mammals. The mammals, the, the middle-aged men, men in, in, in Lycra. I taught that to someone recently, and they were so excited about it. They're like, that's amazing. I'm going to call my dad that. Uh, Be careful whom you call that. Oh, of course. Before that, I did that with... He's a friend now, but when I referred <laughs> to that person as that, he, he was not appreciative. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't think it was cool. So. <laughs> not as funny to be said to instead of said. Or the other thing I love to say is like, kid it up, folks. And they're like, what? Like, <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> um, but, you know, a, a common thing that people will complain about is, oh, you know, these aggressive on your left, like, we get it, okay? You're This isn't the Tour de France. This is a path. And I think there's something to be said for tone. We were just talking about that with the bus driver. It's like, excuse me, passing on your left or you mind if I scooch by you here? Just just kind of, you know, not reason with them, but come down to their level a little bit. Exactly. You're right. You don't exactly. have to, you know, I feel bad sometimes when I ring my bell and it startles them, but I'm really just trying to be polite. And then it's what happened to me is like, oh, crap, the bell isn't like. Oh, it's raining and my bell's not working it's properly. Not working, and I'm like doing it and then it works when it's like you're right on them. And then I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was really trying to. And they're just, they kind of give you that glare. The whole um, thing about on your left. When the trail was open in Mattapan, mm-hmm. um, I've kind of discovered that folks may not be aware of it, but then there's also just they're not interested mm-hmm. because culturally that may not be something that, you know, um, my parents being from Puerto Rico, you know, beaches are a thing, but rivers are not necessarily. It's mm-hmm. kind of rivers are the things that crest over and make it really, really difficult. Like if it rains too much for you to be able to pass through. So I, mm-hmm. I, just, I don't think that there's necessarily that appreciation of it mm-hmm. so um when we when we were and still to this day we're still asking for signage that's not the uniform signage that the state parks place everywhere because there's just experiences that they're just not familiar right like mm-hmm. um, i can't remember what it's called when you bring it in you got to take it back out anyway it'll come oh um carry in carry out yes yeah and i was like i had to think about that i was like what does that mean right so that's like this idiomatic phrase that will work for the folks that are familiar with state parks. So mm-hmm. the other thing was like how this on your left thing just doesn't work. And recently there was a person walking their dog and the dog was not leashed. And that is, you know, a rule that your dog needs to be on a leash. And I was coming up on the person and he was startled at, because I had said, I had said to him, you know, your dog really should be on a leash. And he said to me, and you should have said on your left because I didn't realize that you were coming. I had rang my bell. And so it was like, oh, we're going to go back and forth this to <laughs> who's more wrong. Who's most right. And so I kind of let it go. But he and I said, well, I don't I don't say on my left. I usually say good morning or, you know, coming up or something or I'll ring my bell or just something um, heads up or something like that. Just mm-hmm. some sound that will be familiar, because in the beginning, when I would say on your left, people would scatter because they didn't really know what that meant. They thought they needed to move to the left. I've had that like happen. That. that happens a lot. So I just come up with different ways to let somebody know that I'm coming up because of the fact that on your left is like, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've, in a nice way, will take a moment and say, it's just like when you're driving on the street 
you stay on the right hand side and we will pass you on your mm-hmm, exactly and most people are like oh i never realized that right that like i appreciate shopping that. is like that too when you're in a grocery store you should be on the right side of the aisle unless you you know your cart should be over there and you can grab something from the left but put your cart on the right so yeah. something that has always bothered me <laughs> yes, yes. and the, the other thing is like what well, we could paint up that whole trail with all of this really ugly signage but it's just it's one thing I can say about the Nopanza Trail is that it's still very natural setting in that. Mm-hmm. Now, there are there is going to be added signage because that's the other thing we've talked about. Folks don't know where they're where it is. They're not sure where the distance is. So DCR is redoing kind of like their whole interpretive signage along the system, like the Minuteman, so where it tells you what mile you're on. Yeah, we have no signage. Hmm. We have no sign. Yeah, I guess that. you don't. And it's been open for four years now. So, oh my God. Um, but it's coming. It's coming. And that, and one of the great things about being on the Neponset River Greenway Council, which is a group of residents that, that surround the, the Greenway that have been together for 20 some odd years advocating for extensions, improvements, maintenance and all that is that that I think we're pretty unique to DCR in that sense because mm-hmm. – we're friends of theirs. We're not in their face all the time about yeah. and, and have had conversations and really kind of helped in the planning and of the design and the maintenance because they know that, that we're going to be there working with them. We're not, we're not just in their face about. But mm-hmm. this is one of those things that it's taken a while. And I mean, some of us understand it's a state agency and there's a lot that needs to be done and they don't have a lot of staff and they don't have a lot of funding. So this is my little advocacy thing that we need to talk to our state reps <laughs> to make sure that our state parks are um, adequately funded and visit them mm-hmm. <laughs> and see yeah. what they're like because they're wonderful resources everywhere. So well, anyway, what do we want to talk about next? <laughs> well, uh, we have been chatting for a while, but I do want to cover one more topic before we go back to our lives. And that is, I want to know more about you. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do with these sit down conversations, um, which I know the two of us could talk bikes forever because we have I kind of want to know a little bit more about other interests that you might have I mean we all love biking obviously but we have other lives some of us run makeup businesses um so what God, what, what, what 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 else do you do with your life <laughs> what, what do you like to do for fun okay so my brother and sister are the ones growing up my sister knew she wanted to be a teacher from like day one my brother when he I think senior year in college walked up to one of these tables and signed up to be to work with the federal government. I'm still trying to figure out what the hell I want to do, right? So I never have had like a career career forever. The longest place I ever worked at was at our county hospital in El Paso. And I got that job after um, I'd been married and was getting divorced and came back to finish my degree at the University of Texas at El Paso, go Miners. And um <laughs> Somehow I applied for that job. I don't even remember how. Somebody worked there. And so I started working in in public affairs. And then after some time, I became the director of volunteer services, which was, I remember seeing, you know, in the military hospitals, they have candy stripers and, you know, people. And so I was the person that was working with those folks. Now, I come from a family that really believes in volunteering. In the military, you are voluntold. So from a young age, you know, we were always going to wherever puppy was doing stuff or whatever. So, um... When folks are like, oh, my God, why is it that you have this spirit? Is like because my sister and brother and I were really blessed to have amazing parents that really believed in community. And even though we moved, however often we moved, that's where we lived at that time, and that's what we were going to do, right? So my father had a career in the military, and my mother was had been a teacher in Puerto Rico, and then she became a military wife. But she was always involved in our schools and, like, the Cub Scout mom and all of that kind of stuff. So anyway... 
started working at the hospital, then became responsible for volunteers. Um, El Paso is on the border with Mexico. Spanish is the first language that is spoken in our city. And if you're not comfortable with that, then maybe that's not where you should be. So, and I actually had to kind of get used to that. Um, and that hospital was like being in a city. And I absolutely loved being there. I worked there for 11 years. The nosy Nelly part of me loved going to the emergency department because we were a level one trauma center. And one thing I remember about that way back then, okay, I left the hospital in 2001, all right? I worked there 11 years. So the word was only crash. We did not refer to it as accidents. So when I moved here, I was like, wait a minute, we haven't been referring to those things as crash because wow. we were a level one trauma center. So, you know, if you were doing something and you came there, it was because you were not paying attention, and so that was considered a crash, right? Wow. That long ago, right? So anyway, folks would want to come in, and they wanted to, like, I want to volunteer in the emergency department because I'm going to go to medical school. At that time, we did not have a medical school in El Paso. But anyway, I'd say, come on in. And then I'd say, well, this is what we need. We need people that are going to be talking to families, and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And in my head, I'm like, then you're not going to be a good doctor. So I was the one on Monday nights. I was like, well, let me go check it out so I could really kind of learn to figure out how I could interest people in wanting to come in and to volunteer and not just be there where the action was, right? Every Monday night, I would go in the emergency department from 7 until 11 o'clock at night, and then I'd come back the next day to work. I learned so much about just experiences of what people were going through. And then I started helping interpret. And I would just go in the room with, you know, because we did not have the capacity to have the nurse or the unit clerk or somebody that was actually working with direct patient care. And I was like, well, I can do it. I can do it. And so I would go in and I remember that they would ask the patient, like, so tell me how long you've been having the pain. I do that. But then it'd be like, well, how long has, has, have you had problems with your gallbladder? And I could say, ¿Cuánto tiempo está sufriendo con el dolor con? And then I get stuck because I was like, I don't know how you say gallbladder. And so the resident knew how to say that, right? Which right now it's escaping me. But anyway, so we would work it out. And I remember that the folks that were there were just like, nobody was critical of the fact that you didn't know how to say the word. It was like, we can have a conversation and you get what I'm saying and working it out. And that's where the idea of becoming an interpreter was something that I was really interested in. One of the first things that I wanted to do, I wanted to be an interpreter. At that time, I would refer to it as a translator, just for those folks that don't know, interpretation is for speaking, translating is for writing, for written language. So interpreters are the ones that are doing it you know, by mouth. And then um, I wanted to work at the UN. Ooh. Because I remember as kids, when we would fly from Puerto Rico into the United States, the flight attendants were bilingual. And I thought, it's just us and them. We're the only people that speak both languages. And I thought it was great. And that's when they were all glamorous and they wore the really cute outfits and all that. And I wanted to be a flight attendant first. And then I thought I wanted to be an interpreter at the UN. So I started doing medical interpreting unofficially at this hospital. And then I just got into this bored state of like, I've been here too long. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I did after I left the hospital and I did the pet sitting thing. And I was just in a rut. And some friends were the ones that told me about this cool program in New York, the National Urban Fellows, and I should apply for it. And it was like, what is that? And it was, honestly, I didn't know what the hell the damn degree was. But I was like, okay, I'm going to come. And so I applied, um, came to New York City April 15th, and was living in New York City by Memorial Day weekend. I was like 46 years old. I never had roommates. 
I never had been to New York to obviously live there. We're like the only Puerto Rican family that does not have family in New York City. And just dove into this program where there were 38 people in a cohort and very intense, 14 months. And I had left the hospital sometime before that. And I said, you know, I kind of want to see what it's like at a hospital in New York City. Because this is like everybody and their mother, right? This is going to be amazing. And my capstone was about, I did a cultural competency study. I didn't know what the hell cultural competency was when I worked at the hospital in El Paso. Because my undergrad is in Spanish. And when they would put up a sign, and they, of course, they'd write it first in English and then in Spanish. And I was like, that needs to have a written, radiología needs a written accent on the eye. That it got to the point that no sign went up in that hospital until I said yes. Remind you, I was director of volunteer services. I was not <laughs> in another, but I had, and, and another thing that I had started doing, because after being in the emergency department and realizing you can hand these folks this pamphlet, but they're not understanding it, right? Because there's a, it's all about the reading level. And so I just started learning these things kind of organically just by experience. And so I, I decided to form a group of, of staff people that were bilingual, but a lot of them like native speakers of Spanish that like grew up in Juarez, but now we're living in the United States. And we transformed all of the written material in the hospital so that we made sure that people all levels could understand it. Those nurses were like, and you? Why? But I knew that people, they didn't understand it, right? So that kind of started planting the seed about we need to make some changes here. So when I was at the hospital in New York, I'll speed this up, <laughs> discovered that we're in New York and it's the same shit. Yeah. You know, people are coming here, they're not understanding it, and that's when I realized what I had been doing in El Paso was technically illegal because you have to have a trained interpreter that is actually working with the patients because I didn't speak medical Spanish, right? I could get around, there was a resident that would help me. But that's when I learned that the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act requires that any program, any medical program that is receiving federal funding has to be able to provide all of their services in the languages that their patients speak. Spanish was my first language, but when I was five or six years old and started going to school, then I, then I learned English, right? My parents were fully bilingual, but, and they always, my dad would get so upset because we'd only speak to them in English. But I could not have that conversation for that, you know, in, in certain spaces in Spanish, but because I had worked in a hospital for such a long time, I understood like the processes or I knew enough about different symptoms and things that I, I did well in the understanding what it was that we were needing to. I just needed to learn the medical terminology. Someday, I will actually be able to do that. It's one of those things that if I could just squeeze it in, if I could just squeeze it in, because I can walk into a healthcare setting and I feel like I'm at home. Um, especially at Boston Medical Center because there's just so many people there and I just because that's like our counterpart to what we had in El Paso. Interesting. I like how I said, you know, what do you like to do in your spare time? A lot of people might say, oh, you know, travel, watch TV. I do improv comedy in my spare time. And you're like, well, I volunteer at a hospital. No, I don't anymore. No, I don't. No, no, no. No, but that was... That's still the emphasis, though, is that you like being able to give back in that way. Oh, my God. It's just I (laughs) even today on the other side, there were some people when I was coming back that were asking how to get to someplace. Their phone had died. I mean, that happens to me like almost every day. Right. So I was just like, here, well, just tell me what it is. And I said, I don't know exactly where it is because it's not really showing on here, but you're just going to go here, go here, go here. (laughs) 
And they were like, thank you, thank you. And then the folks here said, thank you, too. So so we are at 59 minutes, which is lots of talking. So we're going to wrap this up. I do like to travel, though. (laughs) Okay, just let you know. (laughs) As we wrap up today, um, are there any... Uh, projects that you want to shout out and um, any plugs that you want to make, you know, your Twitter, your Instagram, whatever the case may be. Um, I am that bike lady on Instagram, on Facebook. The Monday night rides for right now are just kind of on hold because the path that we ride on gets dark and we're just not going to do that. But one thing I do want to plug is livable streets, our tour to streets. Instead of doing it in September, we're going to do it in December. So I'm really excited about what we can do about getting some folks biking during the winter time because we do live in new england it's not about the weather it's about making sure you have the right clothes so look out for that and other stuff that might happen if you follow uh that bike lady lady. or mattapan viv on twitter um then we can keep in touch excellent well vivian thank you i'm definitely gonna have to post a picture because we're sitting in a shoe shine stand in the lobby of the one federal building um because this was just a very comfortable place to sit and chat for a little bit um and yeah thanks for being here no thank you so much this was a lot of fun i love talking to vivian she has so much passion for what she does she gets so much done we could literally talk for hours together about biking and we would have if i hadn't cut off our conversation so don't worry she will be coming back we will talk again once she has more of her boston bike mayorship uh, activities completed. And um, I know the next time it's going to be another really great conversation. Now, for those of you playing along at home, you may have heard once, twice, several times, maybe we have a big election coming up. Yes, there are multiple elections happening around the state of Massachusetts, honestly, around the country that you should be paying attention to. But for right now, I'm going to talk specifically about the Boston election. This is happening Tuesday, November 2nd, and it's a doozy. For the first time in 200 years, Boston is poised to elect its first non-white, non-male candidate and extend its streak of BIPOC women mayors after Kim Janney stepped in when Mayor Marty Walsh left for Washington. We have two great candidates. One is Michelle Wu, who is a descendant of Taiwanese immigrants, and Anissa Asabi-George, who describes herself as the first Arab Polish American. While on the surface, these two candidates may seem similar, there's some really important distinctions that we'll be talking about on this podcast that's going to lead you to be on the Wu train with me. The biggest distinction is Michelle Wu's views towards biking and transportation, which I imagine if you're listening to this, you care quite deeply about. Wu has historically made an effort to attend local biking events, such as the Bikes Not Bombs Bikeathon and the Ride for Black Lives to show her support for improved transportation and biking infrastructure, as well as her views for supporting all black lives. She was endorsed by current Mayor Kim Janney, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, local, the local teachers union, the MBTA union, as well as several other labor unions and our local chapter of Planned Parenthood. So she's in really good company just from that alone makes her a great candidate. But one thing that I will touch on is just that Anissa Asabi George is also 
on the record saying that she pledges to block bike lanes, any bike lanes on Center Street in West Roxbury. There's a clear indication to me that she doesn't see the value in changing away from a car-centric city in light of not only safety issues for bikes, and as I talked about with Galen earlier, how bike infrastructure lifts all vulnerable users, but also climate issues. Boston has awful traffic and congestion, and that is just leading to continued issues with climate. So, uh, you know, we really want a candidate who's going to see the value in moving away from cars. Michelle Wu is currently ahead by 25 to 30 points, according to the latest Data for Progress and Boston Globe slash Suffolk University polls, but we shouldn't get complacent. All we need to do is look at the 2016 and 2020 elections to know that. It should also be pointed out that the demographic in Boston, you know, despite looking around downtown, as of 2015, we're only 53% white. The rest of our city is made up of 25.2% black, 9.3% Asian, 18.8% Hispanic, as well as you know, a mixture of people who either identify as two races or other races. And that just means that it's more important than ever to have a mayor that represents all of our city and not just some of our city. So now we're going to cut to my conversation with Amy and Jen, where Amy Kennedy, who uh, knows a lot about civics in the area, is going to try to convince Jen Bo why she should vote Michelle Wu. For our last segment today, uh, you know, again, in honor of the fact that we do have this big mayoral election coming up next week, I am sitting down with two very dear friends of mine, Jen Bo and Amy Kennedy. Super, both of pumps to be here. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. <laughs> so I have two lovely ladies in front of me, one of whom I know is very civically minded and one of whom wants to get more involved in civics. So I'm going to turn the tables over to Amy Kennedy, who is going to take us through why she chose her candidate of choice, which, you know, this podcast is formally supporting Michelle Wu, obviously. Team Wu, Wu, all the way. (laughs) And she's going to take her through some of the points and we'll follow up with Jen about how she feels about all of that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, speaking as a pretty progressive voter, the choice was clear, even in a more crowded primary field. Um, I was, you know, on Team Wu's, uh, you know, uh, idea and wanting to vote for her well early into, you know, when she even announced uh, when Marty Walsh was still mayor. Um, So that is Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, who was once previewed on John Oliver's show with just a picture of a random white guy and John Oliver making fun of everyone being like, see, you didn't even know that wasn't him. Uh, I did because I know what he looks like, but I get it. Really, really blah mayor. Super, super white Irish. Yeah. Walsh. I just, yeah, Walsh. Very Walsh. Very Walsh. Uh, I just remember his, like, earlier in the day speech at the 2016 Democratic Convention where he goes, hello, my name is Marty Walsh, <laughs> and I'm the mayor of Boston. And uh, so, yeah. But no longer. He's, you know, Secretary of Labor now. Uh, Good for in, him. In the cabinet. Um, but, yeah, team, team move all the way. Clear progressive candidate. Uh, has firm policies on uh, climate in Boston, which, you know, really threatens 
most of downtown, definitely all the Seaport, East Boston, you name a neighborhood and it really affects it. <coughs> She's the leader uh, on the climate issues. She's the leader on housing. Um, I don't know much about her education policies, but, you know, she has the backing of uh, a number of you know, teacher unions. She also has kids, which does not mean, of course, that someone who has kids is the only one who can care about kids. Mm -hmm. But I think that does help that she's really focused on family well, and how to improve that as well. Yeah. I mean, both candidates are mothers. They both have children that are in the, the Boston public school education system but I do think it gives both of them a bit of an edge. Can I interrupt you for one second which yes. is there's this crazy rule within uh, elections in Boston in which you can't use funds for like funds that you've raised to pay for child care yes and so the women what? both women yeah both yeah. women running in this election have you know in a lot of ways struggled because they have to find someone to take care of their kids so that they can go out on the campaign trail or they drag their kids along or they bring like, their kids to a lot of events. you know uh, michelle Wu's kids i you know i uh, i honestly don't know her kids names but they are troopers they are mm -hmm. smiling in every photo they're out there talking to voters mixing it up and you know it's it's quite incredible to see them on the campaign trail they always look happy they never look upset which I'm sure we're only getting, you know, a portion of those, those <laughs> the pictures. How old are they? Do you know? Are they young kids? They're, uh, they're young. So yeah. I think one's like four or five and the other one's like six or seven or something like that. Yeah. Um, maybe even a little older. But, uh, yeah. So she's a clear progressive candidate if you care about progressive politics. You know, the other night in the debate she said, I'm, you know, I'm running for mayor not to talk about what we can't do, but what we can do. And that's the type of candidate that I want to support. Jen, do you have any questions? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I'm convinced. that That's all it took? Wow. <laughs> Does she have any specific no, I was, policy positions? I was, I, I was hearing murmurings from other people that I know and trust and feel like I'm aligned with the values that, you know, my friends have. And there's a lot of signs around for Woo and... West Roxbury. Yeah, which is, you know, it, it, West Rocks did, I believe, lean heavily towards uh, Anissa mm -hmm. during the primary election. She kind of had strongholds in West Roxbury and a mm -hmm. little bit in Roslindale and some in South Boston, too. Um, so it should be interesting to see what those neighborhoods do yeah, in, a, in, in the a final less crowded field mm -hmm. yeah. uh, with less candidates. But, uh, you know. If anything, it's really exciting that Boston is going to continue its now, hopefully, two-person streak of, uh, you know, a f woman mayor in the city, which is nice. Uh, no possibility of a, of a dude running the city, so that's exciting. That is exciting. Um, I'm very excited, and I know she has a lot of uh, visions in terms of biking as well. Um, there's a big campaign in the city from the Boston Cyclists Union called I Bike, I Vote. And uh, Vivian, who was on the podcast earlier, uh, who I did the long interview with, was wearing her hat that she got from the League of American Bicyclists that also says I Bike, I Vote. Because I think that's really important to understand that there's a power to this segment of people who mm -hmm. want to see a city. And it's not just, you know, oh, biking is great. That's really good. It's about the infrastructure. It's about 
it's about lifting everyone with that infrastructure too. So not just biking, but a better busing system, mm-hmm. um, more pathways, more concentration on things that just aren't cars, yeah. mm-hmm. which uh, I find very refreshing, especially when we have a very car centric governor at the moment. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and bikes are definitely a part of, you know, Massachusetts, like, uh, you know, green future without mm-hmm. increasing ridership on the T and increasing people not using their cars and using other methods such as biking, we're just not going to be able to hit the the climate goals mm-hmm. that we need to hit in order to, uh, I guess, have a future for <laughs> future generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we live in a very car-centric city, um, and so it's it's really nice to see this this been a this has been a huge Ah, this has been a huge focus of this election is the sustainability issues and you know I've heard kind of candidly from a couple of my friends who do work in biking and sustainability in the city well don't worry once we have that new mayor mayor, we can take (laughs) care of some of these things so yeah uh, very much looking forward to that so Jen it sounds like we have we have your vote you have my vote do you know what day we're voting November 2nd I think yeah. Did I, did I get it right? Okay, yeah, good. you did. <laughs> you win. That first Woo! Tuesday in November. Mark it down on your calendars, folks. It's coming up. Yeah. yeah. It's coming up real soon. And I always like to make a plug for the fact that local elections matter. Mayoral mm-hmm. is a little bit bigger. And I just heard Michelle Wu on a national podcast talking about. Woo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> she was on What a Day, uh, which is a crooked media podcast. <laughs> And they were doing highlights of local elections that were happening. But she was talking about the power of, you know, the cities taking on these initiatives because that ripples Mm. out to the rest of the state. It ripples out Mm -hmm. to the rest of the area. New England's a, even if each individual state is pretty small, the area is big. Mm -hmm. And that can really have a huge impact on the country at large. So, you know, not just the impact that it has to you locally, the impact that can have nationally, um, and then voting down ticket is also really important. We got city councilors on the ballot. Mm-hmm, yep. So making sure that we're being informed about everything we want to vote on and going to all of our elections is super important. So get out there and vote. Yep. Definitely do that. Woohoo! That is a wrap on episode one, folks. Uh, we had a lot to say today, so I, I hope you stuck around for the whole thing. I want to give a big Thank you to Galen Mook, Bridget Copes, Vivian Ortiz, Amy Kennedy, and Jen Bowe for helping me create this very first episode. And of course, a special thanks to Kate Hardley for the amazing theme and music throughout the show. The podcast is hosted, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Laura Jillian, with an honorable mention to Watson, the bike dog, for his contributions throughout the show. For more information about the show and biking, you can visit my website at randonista.com. And you can follow my adventures in biking, as well as some behind the scenes about the pod at randonista on Instagram and Watson's biking adventures at Watson the Bike Dog, also on Instagram. And now, your Watson moment. Let me tell you about your first climate ride. Just ignore Watson. Hold on, Watson's making a cameo. <laughs> Watson. Watson. My first climate ride was difficult. <laughs> My legs were also tired and I was very dehydrated. <laughs> Rings her bell, goes around, and then as I'm passing them, they notice Watson in the backpack and it's just like, 
gushing just oh my god do you see him oh my god look at him and it was just the most precious thing um as he's just looking super cool in his doggles and people are just like it's just a joy to see people's day absolutely made by seeing watson and now i feel like i'm gonna have a pavlovian response when every time i hear a bell i'm gonna just go (laughs) oh (laughs) (laughs) watson How do I explain? Seriously? I said you don't have to keep second so you start barking again. So. Okay, I didn't actually. Oh. Oh. Shh. Hey. <laughs> Watson feels bad for you too. That's oh, thank you, Watson. Was-